Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Morning, church. How we doing? Man, it's been it's been like ten minutes since I've seen you. I missed you. I missed you. Uh, For those of you who are joining us online, we are so happy that you are with us as well. Uh, We're going to be in Exodus 32 and 33 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip those open, click those open, do whatever it is you need to do to... uh, to get those open. If you wandered in a little bit late, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH, and we are continuing our series through the, uh, the book of Exodus. And we are a few weeks from completing this series. I've really enjoyed this series. It, remind, it reminds me of God's holiness, it reminds me a lot of the different things uh, that, man, the Old Testament, some of the challenging parts of the Old Testament, right? We're talking about a lot of times we're dealing with God's wrath. We're dealing with, man, entire people groups getting wiped out. Um, we are, uh, we're dealing with some of the difficult like laws and different things like that that, that is hard for us to be able to, uh, to understand. And so we're going to wrap those up or wrap this up in the next couple weeks. And then we're going to launch into a brand new series uh, as we do a, a hard push into the fall back towards uh, ministry, more regular ministry and that sort of thing. It's crazy. It's 111 degrees out. And we're talking about the fall. Let's keep it that way. Um, but, uh, but today we're going to be in the second half of 32 and the very beginning of, of, uh, of 33. And man, this is a difficult passage. I want you guys to, to have a heads up about that right away. Because last week, man, we talked about God's grace and how awesome he is and all this stuff. And then this week we're going to see that, man, God tells Moses to kill a whole bunch of people. Um, and so, uh, so as I was kind of unpacking that and looking at this and all this stuff, one of the things that really stuck out to me was how difficult of a position that Moses was in. Moses in a really hard position of leadership here, right? Leadership, actually, it's, uh, it's one of the most written about topics in the nonfiction category. Everybody kind of deals with leadership in some realm of their world, right? All of you have been in a position of leadership at some point, whether it's, you know, a kid's soccer team, which, man, I seem to get roped into a lot. But as long as it's under eights, it's cool because they don't know what they're doing anyway. So you can tell them whatever you want as a coach. But maybe it's that. Maybe it's at your job in some way um, that, that you have, you're, you're in a structural position of leadership, like you get paid to be in leadership at your job. Maybe it's here at the church. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's in your family. Like, hey, your leadership role is is in your family. The most important leadership role that you will ever have. Whatever it is, all of you at some point have been exposed to or asked to be in leadership in some way. And so it's no wonder that it is such a written about topic. I actually, I went to Amazon uh, as I was writing this, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to type in leadership and see how many book results came up. I just typed in leadership. Over 60,000 results on leadership came up for books alone, right? And so it is, it is incredibly talked about. People want to know about it because leadership seems to permeate almost every area of, of someone's life at some point. And so then I was like, okay, 60,000 books. Yeah, but that's like on like business leadership and like that's like leadership without morals and that sort of thing. Like let's talk about Christian leadership. So I just typed in Christian leadership and there were still over 10,000 books written specifically about Christian leadership. It's a ton, right? It is an absolute ton. People want to know about leadership. People want to know how they can be better leaders. And, and, and these books oftentimes are a gateway into that. Leadership books are one of the books that I really enjoy to, to read uh, for pleasure, specifically leadership on, on church and that sort of thing. So some of my favorites are Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. Some of you guys have probably heard of that guy. He's not a Christian leader, but he has his finger to the pulse of society. And a lot of his things in his book from Leaders Eat Last specifically should definitely apply to, uh, to Christian leadership. Another one is uh, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership uh, by John Maxwell. Some of you have probably read that one. That one's been out for a, a much longer time. And my favorite, Simple Church by, uh, by Thomas Rayner. It talks about church leadership and church structures and all of that stuff. But one of these things that's true about all of these books, and probably not just these three, but the other 60,000 books um, that I found on Amazon, is the idea that, man, leadership is really easy when you're talking about leadership from a theoretical standpoint. 
right? Leadership is really, really easy if you are in your armchair, if you're in your recliner looking at other people who are doing the work and can talk about it theoretically. I could do that better, right? It's the same thing as an armchair quarterback on a Sunday morning or Sunday night or Monday night or Thursday night, whenever it is the NFL plays now, right? It's like you can sit there. It's why we can all sit there and trash some of the greatest athletes on the face of this earth while we're sitting in our chairs slowly getting fatter, right? Because of the fact that like, hey, from a theoretical standpoint, man, I'm way better than that guy. And so leadership, in summation of that, leadership is hard when you actually lead. Okay, write that down. Leadership is difficult when, when you actually lead. And think about, think about the leaders in your life. Okay, like I said, maybe it's, it's in the confines of your family, parents, your husband, your in-laws. Maybe it's in your work life, your bosses, or your boss's boss, or your boss's boss's boss, depending on where you're at in the, the pecking order. Even me and our pastoral staff here. Right from the outside looking in, it's very, very easy. But at some point, you were asked to be in a role of leadership. I don't know where it was, but at some point, you either have been or you will be coaching, volunteering for something, professional setting at work, whatever. And once you got into that role, you realized how difficult it actually was or how difficult it would be if you actually put in the work to make something more healthy than it was when you inherited it, right? Leadership is, is difficult when you're actually leading. You're putting yourself into a position of vulnerability, right? You're putting yourself into a position that if something fa fails, it's going to be on your shoulders as the leader. One of my favorite quotes, it's by John Maxwell from that book, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. It says, everything rises and falls with leadership, everything. So the higher you are in the leadership organization, the more responsibility you have for the failures everywhere in that organization, right? So that's the reality of being a leader. That's just part of the responsibility of being a leader. So today we're going to talk about what it means for each of us to step into that realm of leadership and do the things necessary to be a leader. And not just a leader by title, but a leader who is actually committed to doing the work that God requires of us as leaders, and we can even see part of it from our story last week. Our story last week, it's, it's, we talked through Moses. He's up on the mountain and he's talking with God, right? And God's giving them all of these different requirements and rules and, and commandments. And you need to do this and build the tabernacle that way. And this sacrifice for that, like all the different things that we tend to glaze over. And so while Moses is up there for like 40 days talking to God, the Israelites who are down on the mountain, man, they're bored. It's kind of ironic because they get bored at the same time that we tend to get bored when we're reading through the, the, the requirements of the law in Exodus, right? So the Israelites, they're bored before it is like, look, we don't even know if this guy is alive right now. So I don't know what it is that we're supposed to do. I don't know. I got a good idea. You guys got some earrings. Let's make a golden calf and worship it. That sounds like a good call. We're bored anyway. Let's do some arts and crafts time and make an idol. Right, so like that is what is happening. And so they took their earrings, they, they, like they did the whole calf thing. So of course God saw this. God's not happy with any of it because we serve a jealous God, right? And right before God decides that he's going to destroy the entire Israelite nation, Moses intercedes for the people that he's leading. Okay, Moses intercedes for his followers on behalf of the people that, that he was in charge of and ensures that not only all of them, or ensures that not all of them were going to be punished by God. Okay, that's, that, like, that's difficult, right? You guys ever gone in for a, um, a job performance? Like a job, like, like you, you go and talk to your boss about, hey, the things that you need to improve on, and hey, your team's really struggling with this. Think of what Moses had to do. And Moses going up to talk to God, and God's like, hey, those people that I put you in charge of leading, they're worshiping idols. Like they did, like I said, arts and crafts time, and they are worshiping some sort of idol that they just made. Like probably the, the, like not the easiest situation to step into regarding leadership. But now we're going to see how Moses handles his role as a leader when he goes back down the mountain. He's already talked with God. God has actually relented. God was going to wipe them all off the face of the earth. God was like, hey, look, I'll, I'll wipe all of them out, Moses, and I will actually make my chosen people out of you. If you read the text, like God is willing to make Moses the new figurehead of the Israelite nation. Like what a temptation. Like Moses could be the new Abraham, right? Like the, like the leader of all of these people. That's what God was saying to Moses. Moses is like, no, 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 God, these are your people. Please relent. And so Moses intercedes, but Moses knows that God is not happy. 
And so Moses goes down the mountain and he actually destroys the tablets that God had given to him back in Exodus 24, 12. It says this, it says, God had invited Moses up the mountain and promised him tablets of stone. The Lord said to Moses, come up, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Okay. Anybody grow up going to Sunday school, like classic Sunday school? Raise your hand. Yeah, a couple of you. Good. Okay. So you grew up going to classic Sunday school. For me, like we would watch videos sometimes, right, of like the Ten Commandments being written in stone. And it was always like this like bright light or some sort of feather or something like that. Like it almost looked like the Little Mermaid when she was signing that contract with Ursula. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. So for those of you non-Sunday school people, you can at least get that reference. Okay, so anyway, I always imagined in my head that like, man, I bet when God inscribed those tablets, man, his handwriting was probably perfect, right? Like, man, that did, you know for a fact he wrote in perfect cursive. And all of you millennials and down couldn't read it, but everybody above the millennials, you guys could totally, totally read that. Okay, so Moses, though, he descends on this mountain carrying, carrying these, these tablets. And after Moses had interceded for the people, it says this, Exodus 32, 15 to 16. It says, Moses turned and he went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The work of God, like God created these. The writing was the writing of God engraved on these tablets. These are, man, these are incredible tablets that he is bringing back down the mountain. They're called here and later on in, in the Pentateuch, the tablets of testimony or the covenant as New Revised Standard Version would say. The word means like, it means testimony or reminder or warning sign. Related to that word, it kind of means like to bear witness, to admonish, to warn. But now Moses is angry about what he sees. And in verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Like this is real. Moses is angry right now because he understands that God is angry. He understands that there should have been repercussions for these actions and he is seeing what God had told him about up on the mountain. And so now he gets tested as a leader. What is it that he is supposed to do? And these tablets didn't just slip out of his hands, right? Like he was carrying these probably like you carry your grandma's china. Yeah, these, are, these are God's tablets, things that he had worked on, and his anger burned, and he smashed them out of anger. The tablets, they represented God's covenant with Israel. This understanding that, that God had delivered these people, and now that God had delivered these people, these were the rules that they were supposed to live by. This is what they were supposed to, they were supposed to do. And after, like, this covenant was given by God to Moses, almost immediately after it was made, the Israelites were now attributing everything that God had did for them up to this point to idols, to a golden calf that they had created with their own hands. Okay, Moses, as the leader, he knew that God, like what God had commanded of the people. He was commanded to lead. Moses was commanded to lead by God. And Moses had a very, very real relationship with him from the point of the burning bush forward. Think about everything that God had done in the life of Moses, right? Saved him from being tossed into the Nile, was allowed to grow up in Pharaoh's own home, became a leader of the Israelite people. I mean, allowed them to not only leave Egypt, deliver them from Egypt, but then walked across dry land as the Red Sea was parted. And now he's responsible for leading this group of people. He had a very real relationship with God. He had just spent 40 days on top of a mountain talking with him, getting instruction from him. And even though he cared deeply for the people that he was leading, Hear me on this. Even though that Moses cared deeply for the people he was leading, he cared more deeply for what God had called him to. That's where he started. He cared about being obedient to God first. Not last, not eventually, not after I have this conversation. Obedient to God first. This needs to be true in our lives as well. If you're in a position of leadership anywhere in your life, you need to step up to the plate and be obedient to God before, or be obedient to God before anything else. Period. That's it. 
God's demands for your life, his desires for who he created us to be, those things come before people-pleasing. They come before other people's feelings. Because as much as we want to love and care for other people, if our care turns a blind eye to their disobedience to God, then, then, then we can't just do whatever they think is right. Right? Our obedience to God always comes first. There is never a time that you should shirk your responsibility to God because someone else will look down on you for doing it. Ever. Like, like this is peer pressure. We're talking about peer pressure here, right? Like as adults, we're talking about peer pressure. We talk about this with our kids and we say, hey, say no to drugs, right? But, but this is peer pressure. And we think, oh, this is kind of ridiculous. Like, of course, we're going to be obedient to God before we care about what other people say. But we end up doing things we know aren't right because we are afraid of what other people are going to think of us, that they will think less of us in some way how we act, how we communicate with those people who believe, how we communicate with those people who don't believe. God cares deeply about these things. God cares deeply about our obedience to him. And, and Moses, and this guy, he is not done showing them what the repercussions of their actions are because he's going to be obedient to God regardless of what the Israelites are doing. Remember the golden calf? Exodus 32.20, or 32:20, excuse me. It says, and he took the calf they had made, and he burned it in the fire, then he ground it in the powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. That's, that's, that's a good word picture right there. Right? And, and immediately for me, I think, hold on, if that thing was made of gold, how did that guy burn it down and grind it into ashes and then make them drink it? Right? A lot of people actually believe that, or, or scholars, some scholars believe that, that this was actually made of wood first and then gold plated around the wood. Okay, so for those of you who are like, that scientifically doesn't make sense. I scientifically don't care. This is what I believe is actually going on here. Okay, so he burns it down, he grinds it into powder, he grinds it into ash, and then he makes them drink that ash. Actually, Deuteronomy 9, 21, it actually gives us a little bit more clarity in it. It says, he threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. Right, so, so in other words, he polluted the people's drinking water. It wasn't like he was like, everybody get a cup, line up. I'm going to sprinkle a little ash in there for you guys to drink. He poured it into a stream. As the stream came down, they drank. he polluted their drinking water. water. Why? No, seriously, why? I don't know why it is that Moses would do this except for the fact that he was angry. Okay, Moses was not happy. He understand God's anger in this sense. He understood destroying this. Maybe there's some sort of ritual sort of thing that went along with this. We don't know. Scholars don't know why it is that he would make them do this. Maybe there's some symbolic significance. We don't know. But so Moses, he destroys a bunch of stuff. And now one of my favorite parts of this story is Moses is now going to go after somebody else who shied away from leading the way that he was supposed to lead. Moses calls his brother Aaron onto the carpet. Because remember, when Moses left, Aaron was in charge. Aaron is the one who oversaw all of this sin and idolatry that was going on while Moses was up on the mountain. Aaron caves to peer pressure here. He bowed to it while Moses was gone. Aaron is not obedient to God. And because of that, he allows other people to just walk all over him. Allows other people to do whatever it is that they saw right. So he confronts his brother Aaron, who is deeply implicated in this. Exodus 32, 21 to 25. This is Moses talking. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Moses is dumbfounded, right? If we go back and see what the Israelite people did to Aaron, you know what they did to him? Absolutely nothing. They suggested that we should do this. That's what they did do. Like Moses is dumbfounded at this point. Like how could you allow, like obviously they tied you up and forced you to do this. Nope. Aaron says this in verse 22. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. Anybody remember like Genesis, fall of man, like, like uh, uh, Adam and Eve, they sin and God calls Adam on it. And God is like, hey, why would you do this? Why would you sin? And Adam's immediately like, well, it's that woman that you gave me. Right? Like he blames two people at once. This kind of echoes of that a little bit here. 
where Aaron is like, well, you know, it's those stiff-necked people that you happen to leave me with, Moses, right? Like he is placing the blame elsewhere immediately. Verse 23, they said to me, make us gods who will go before us as this, as this fellow Moses who's brought us out of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. Verse 24 and 25 are gold. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It just came out like that. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so, beca- and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. Okay, verse 24, can I just say, if you've ever had kids, right, like this reeks of a four-year-old excuse, right? Like, like hey, what, what happened to the cookies that were in the cookie jar? Oh, I don't know. As they have chocolate all over their face, right? Like, I don't know what happened to them. How can you have chocolate on your face? I don't know. It was, like, I, I don't know how it got there. It just got there, right? Or like you tell your kids to hang up their clothes and they don't hang up their clothes. You find them in a pile underneath a pillow, right? May or may not be a true story. How'd it get there? I, I hung them up. I don't know what happened. It's the clothes you gave me right? Like, like this, this is the level of excuse that we're dealing with here with Aaron, okay? Like, hey, I, they, they gave me all this jewelry, and I put it in a fire, and out came this calf. It just came out that way, right? So, let, like, let's take a look, though, at why Aaron, or why Moses is angry at him, because we first have to establish that God hates sin. We talked about that last week, right? Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, okay? We talked about God hates sin, So we need to understand that first and foremost. Moses is God's leader for the Israelite people. And so Moses' responsibility is to call out sin in in the lives of the people that he's leading. That's his responsibility. So let's take a look at Aaron's sin. The first one is, is Aaron's bringing about uh, idolatry and, and this idea of syncretism, okay? Syncretism, it's a little bit of a fancy word, but really what we talked about last week is that, hey, they didn't just make this idol and abandon the God that they had known for this brand new idol. No, what they did is they were like, hey, let's make this idol. This is like the culmination of our time in Egypt, and there's all these other gods, and man, we have a, a God here who's physically present, and we can work it. And you know what we should do? Remember that other God that delivered us out of Egypt? Let's take that God and make it a part of this worldview as well. They synchronized syncretism. They synchronized their worldview together. And I, can I tell you, church, that syncretism is alive and well today? Okay, this is an issue. Syncretism is an issue in, in the Western church and probably the Eastern church as well. But specifically, I can speak to it here. Okay, this idea that we have all of these other opposing worldviews or slightly different worldviews maybe. Maybe it's a political worldview. Okay, maybe it's just a way that we see the world overall. Maybe it's a business worldview or maybe it's the, 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 through the worldview of our family or whatever it is. And we take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and we're like, oh yeah, see how God fits into all of this? That's the idea of syncretism and that's the sin that is going on right now. That's, the, that's one of Aaron's primary sins in all of this. And beyond that, he actually led in the supervising and fashioning of this calf. So that's the first sin that we got Aaron dealing with. The other thing is that he lets these people uh, get, get out of order, get out of control. It talks about that in verse 25. Okay, he uses, it actually uses a single Hebrew word two different times. The word is para. And that word means to let go, to let loose, or to ignore. Right, just he just kind of you know ha- here it's just to like let go, remove restraint from them altogether. That's what he did as a leader. Instead of stopping the the wild worship of idols, he didn't restrain the people at all. And it's the job of a godly leader to help keep order even among unruly, disorderly people. And so to let them run wild with a, just like a mere shrug of the shoulders, it's not an option. But what is worse, I believe, is actually Aaron's false repentance. Okay, instead of being shocked and humbled by the rebuke and being sorry for what he did, he just starts kind of blaming other people. It sounds like he's sorry he got caught, not sorry that he did it, right? All of you parents in the room have dealt with that. Are you actually sorry? Or are you just sorry you got caught? And that's what it sounds like here, right? Verse 24, they gave me the gold. 
And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. We see the same thing all the time though. Not just in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but in every single one of our lives at some point. Specifically, when you get caught doing something you shouldn't do. We, we move the blame onto something else. We project it onto something else. And yeah, I'm sorry, but... We do, it, we do it all the time when we get our hand caught in the cookie jar, right? Like name, an ex- name a sin and there's an excuse to go for it. Greed. Someone's dealing with greed, right? This is an easy one because nobody's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm greedy. No one volunteers that sin, okay? But, but greed. Someone's dealing with greed, right? The excuse is, well, I didn't grow up with very much stuff. And so because of that, I just really have a need for security. And it sounds good. Sounds like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You go on and be greedy. Like you do your thing. Okay, let's get, let's get more real. Okay, pornography gets blamed on the wife for not being a willing participant. Okay? Overeating gets blamed on stress. Not having a more intimate relationship with God gets blamed on your full calendar. It's all of it, all of the things. Name a sin and there's an excuse for us to project on it. Yeah, I'm sorry, but this is why. That's the exact same thing Aaron is doing here. We do this all the time, especially when we get caught. It's a sign of cowardice. And church, we have to own up to our sins so we can move beyond it. That's the reality of it. Unrepentant sin is a plague in the church and we have to repent to God about it and talk with others about it who we trust in our lives so we can get beyond it. It's a plague that we have to get past. Let's keep moving. And I'm still amazed in all of this. I'm still amazed that Aaron isn't severely punished for his leadership in this idolatry. And beyond that, his refusal to take responsibility for his actions. Like in contrast, Moses' sister, Miriam, okay, this is actually from Numbers chapter 12. There is a clear rebuke from the Lord for her rebellion against Moses' leadership. It's Numbers 12, 1 through 15 if you wanted to read it. But we don't hear anything about Aaron getting punished for leading a rebellion against God. We hear nothing about it. That's not to say it didn't happen. We just didn't hear anything about it. So nevertheless, God had already told Moses on the mountain that Aaron was actually going to be the head of the tribe of the Levites. Aaron was going to be the priest. Okay, the, the, the Levitical tribe, the Levites, those are the priests. From this point forward, anytime you read in the Old Testament, the Levites, it's talking about the priests. Okay, So we're going to see here the first instance of all of these priests coming together okay and I will say it does make me happy that even though that Aaron was a coward and he bowed the knee to other people he bowed the knee to peer pressure and tried to blame his sin on other people his unrepentant sin on other people God still used them that's good news for all of us okay but now is when things get real. Okay, we're going to continue on in the story. It's not just smashing tablets. It's not just burning an idol. It's not just yelling at his brother or anything out. Moses is going to weed out everybody who's not for God. He's going to lead the Levites to slaughter everyone who's continuing in idolatry. So the people are still running wild. So Moses takes action. Verse 26, it says, So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all of the Levites rally to him. Moses says, look, if you're for Yahweh, if you're for the Lord, gather around me. And in in my mind, I hear echoes of of Joshua's challenge a generation later. Okay, you probably don't know the story, but my guess is when I read the verse, you're going to be reminded of it. Joshua 24, 15, it says, choose for yourselves this day who who you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's probably over your grandparents' dinner table or something like that, okay? That's the reality. It's an echo. It's a call to those people. Hey, look, come to me. If you are for Yahweh, if you are for the Lord, we are going to serve them. So all of these people, the tribe of Levi specifically, they rally to Moses and he lists, they listen to his direction now in verse 27. It says, then he said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. So hear that. That's not Moses' instruction. This is God's instruction. Each man strap a sword to his side. 
go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. (sighs) Old Testament, am I right? (sighs) This is God's wrath being poured out. This is a jealous God who's saying, hey, look, like you have sinned against me, and the wages of those sin is death, and here's the reality. Here's death. And the way we think about it, man, like we have such a hard time. Like people object to this slaughter of the idolaters as unloving or unjust. But one of the things that we have to remember is, is it's very, very likely that had this not happened, the entirety of the Israelite community would have been wiped off the face of the earth. So is this punishment severe? Yes. Could it have been more severe? Absolutely. But beyond that, I want you to think about the fact that like, the Israelites are God's chosen people. They are God's people who have committed to Yahweh. Guess who represents the Israelite people now? Welcome to church. The church represents the Israelite people. Okay, we are now God's people post-resurrection, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Anybody can come into the family of God. So we are God's people at this point. So I want to contextualize this for you. Let's bring this forward a couple thousand years. Here's the sad part, is I know for a fact that there are people in this room who think they are going to heaven who will not arrive. Because of the fact that, that, that they have chosen idolatry, they have chosen syncretism, they have chosen other things to put in the place of God in favor of cultural Christianity, in favor of saying, you know what, I'm supposed to be here, mom brought me here, grandma brought me here, I know I'm just supposed to do it, I grew up being here, and so because of that, I'm going to be here. It's the same thing that Israelite people were a part of. It was cultural for them to leave Egypt, but now it's getting real. Now they have to decide who it is that they are going to follow. And it's difficult. So difficult, as a matter of fact, that God commands them, hey, look, there are 3,000 people here who think they're worshiping me, but they're not. And they need to go. That's what is happening here. And he he tells everybody at this point, Everybody, after the 3,000 are slaughtered, they chose, like these people who chose the correct side of history, everyone who said no to idolatry and yes to Yahweh, Moses actually blesses them in Exodus 32, 29. It says, then Moses said, and this is like classic post-game speech from a coach, you know what I mean? Like football coach speech. You've been set apart to the Lord for, excuse me, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. He's telling them, hey, hey, look, I know what you did was difficult. It was hard. Following God is hard. You literally killed members of your family to be obedient to God. And because of that, God is going to bless you on this very day. But good leaders, good leaders aren't just good at giving good post-game speeches like that one. They continue to intercede for their people. That's what good leaders do. So the rebellion against God, this has been, it's been put down, the dangers have been eliminated, but now the danger to the Israelites is no longer from the, Levi, the, the, the Levites, those people that God had commanded. Now it's against God himself because they have broken God's covenant. And so God hates sin, wages of sin is death, he is perfect. They need to pay for their actions in some way, which thankfully we're on the other side of the resurrection where that atonement has been sent through Jesus Christ. But this is pre-resurrection. And so this is what God says in verses uh, 30 to 35. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin. But now I, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves, God, made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Let's call time out real quick because I know some of you Bible scholars are going to want to try to make a connection between the book that Moses is talking about and the book of life that it talks about in Revelation. Not the same book. 
okay? Right here, they are talking about it's more metaphorical for the life that they've been given, the physical life that they've been given, not the eternal one. Okay, time back in, verse 34. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So God, he listens to Moses, but, but he does not answer Moses' request. God's like, hey, each person will be responsible for their sin. And go, like they are going to bear their own punishment. That's what is going on here. A plague from God, it strikes his people, but it doesn't wipe them all out. But Moses, his, his intercession isn't over. It continues in Exodus 33, 1 to 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promised land, right? So go up to the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites. He's going to empty out the land for them. Like, hey, Go. But I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. End of that story. This is a hard passage. This is difficult for us to read in the 21st century where anytime that we say God is, it's always filled in with the word love. This is God is slaughtering 3,000 people. That's what this is, and that's difficult for us to be able to come to terms with. You have to understand the greater, greater theological understanding that we talked about last week, that the wages of sin is death. If you believe in the Bible, you believe the wages of sin is, uh, is death. However, God has paved the way for us back to, back to him through his son Jesus, who took on that death for us. Okay, but going back to last week, and even the last part of this passage, I, I want to get back to this idea of, of leadership and Christian leadership specifically. Because Christian leadership, we are called to a higher standard. Moses consistently is called to a higher standard, to a holy standard as a matter of fact. So what we need to understand first here, and if you're a note taker, here's where your notes are coming in. Uh, it, what you need to understand is that good leaders, Christian leaders intercede for people. Christian leaders intercede for people. If a leader can do something to bear the brunt of the, of the repercussions for those that they're leading, they should do it. Okay, if someone comes in and is mad at someone on my staff, I want to do my best to defuse that situation. I want to do my best to, to bear the brunt of that frustration. That simply comes with being like a leader. That's part of the responsibility of being a leader. Now I know because just last week I got to sit in on, on a board meeting for uh, all of our boys are swimming Hanford Piranhas, right? And they're like, hey, we got open board positions. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I should be on the board. Some of you are like, man, Peter gets really tan. What's he doing? I'm sitting on a pool deck for three hours a night. That's what I'm doing. Okay, but I got to sit in on this board meeting. And you want to know what one of the main responsibilities of a board member is? Dealing with frustrated parents. That's it. Like, I'm sure that they could create an entire role that is just like frustration dealer with their person, right? Like, like that could be the role because that's what comes with leadership. And you get to intercede for those people. It's a privilege. It's terrible, but you get to do it. We are called to that standard as Christians. We get to intercede for our people. But once we've done that, once we've interceded for our people, we've taken the brunt of that, of that frustration from those people. It is not our job to shield those that we lead from the repercussions of their actions. That still has to be dealt with. That is our responsibility as leaders as well. If, if as a leader you continue to always step in and fight other people's battles and you don't allow them to feel the repercussions of their poor behavior, that poor behavior is going to be repeated. Any teachers in the room? Yeah, a couple of you. Any of you guys deal with helicopter parents? Yeah, a couple of you. You don't know what a helicopter parent is. It's one of those parents that just kind of hover around all the time, right? Get it? Helicopter parent. 
Okay, and oftentimes what happens with these type of parents is they are constantly stepping in to fight their kids' battles for them over and over and over again. And so you know what happens? The kids continue to perpetuate this behavior over and over and over again. When I was a teacher, it was like a decade ago now. Last service I said a couple years ago, I was like, dang, I'm getting old. So it was like a decade ago now. I was teaching my last class. It was a class of eighth graders, and a kid just decided to just flip me off. Just flip me off in the middle of class. I didn't do anything, right? I think I was teaching him how to write a persuasive essay, and he was mad about it. I don't know. But he decided to flip me off. And, and so, of course, I did my due diligence, sent him to the office. Actually, I tried to defuse the situation first. I was like, hey, stop. I don't know why you're doing that. You need to stop. And he just continued. Like, man, you had a bad lunch break. Some girl broke your heart, eighth grader. I don't know what it was. Okay, so I sent him to the office. I got a phone call later on that night from guess who? Mom. Know what her excuse was? Favorite excuse. He told me he hurt his finger and he was showing you. True story. True story. Like, I'm not making this up. Like, his finger was hurt so bad that he felt the need in the middle of my lesson to show me his hurt middle finger. Thanks, eighth grade. Like, appreciate it. My guess is if, like, that mom continued to step in and fight that kid's battles, then he's going to continue down this path until the repercussions are so bad that mom and dad can't step in. And we say amen to it a lot of times as like parents, like, yeah, our kids need to deal with those repercussions. We personally need to deal with the repercussions of our own actions as well. The people that you lead need to deal with the repercussions of their own actions as well. Or else the bad behavior is just perpetuated over and over and over again. There's no growth. And lastly, as leaders, above all, we have to be obedient to God. We see this with Moses over and over and over again. Everything, everything starts with God. He wasn't doing this because he felt like killing 3,000 people and poisoning their water supply. Like that was not what Moses, he was just like, he was just like an anarchist. It was because God told him to do it. And he didn't care about the opinions of other people. He didn't care about what they thought. He said, I'm going to be obedient to God about this, period. His obedience didn't lie with the whims of his people. His obedience didn't lie with, with man, what, what are people going to think about me if I do this? His, like, his obedience lied with God. And when we decide to lead like that, our jobs... As Christian leaders, guess what? They don't get easier. They get harder. It's hard to be a leader. Be a Christian leader. Lead in a way that you're obedient to God first and everything follows. That's difficult. The same thing like people become Christians for the first time, right? A lot of times they think, oh man, this is like magic and unicorns and Skittles and like all these different things. Right? And the reality is, like, that's not true. You are now called to a higher standard. You're called to become more holy every single day, to become more like God. You have a standard that's even higher than what society has put on you. It's more difficult. And being a Christian leader is the same thing. It requires you to stand up in the face of opposition. It requires you to have a backbone rather than shying away from hard conversations. And that's a difficult thing. I was reading a book, it was about Christian leaders, it was actually about pastoral leadership, and I'm not saying this is true about this church, because it would never be true about any of you guys, but it said, as a pastor, you need to know that the majority of the time, when you walk into the room, you have to be willing to be the only adult there. You got to have a backbone. And I'm not saying I do that all the time. I shirk away from things that I'm getting nervous about. I get anxious about different things. But as a Christian, that's what we're called to. We're called to be the only adult in the room. Every single, it is hard. And I think that's true like of all of Christian leaders, people who are active in the church especially. We're so consumed with trying to be nice to everyone that we don't have hard conversations. And when we don't have hard conversations, guess what happens? The church suffers. The body of Christ suffers because we're too concerned about other people's feelings in the church than we are about God's feelings about our actions. It's our responsibility to be obedient to him. 
We are called to be iron sharpeners of one another, as the book of Proverbs says. We're called to a higher morality than other people. You know, one of the main reasons that Christians are so often called hypocrites? It's because we as Christians don't call each other out on the things that need to be called out. We're not willing to have hard conversations, and poor behavior continues to be perpetuated over and over and over and over again. Because we're more concerned about people's perception of us than we are about God's perception of us. Like if you know someone who loves Jesus and you know someone who is living in, in unrepentant sin and those two things both have to be true, they already love Jesus and they are living in unrepentant sin, it's your job to have that hard conversation. Church, what would happen if the church decided to grow a backbone with others who were in the church and in an incredibly godly and incredibly loving way began to have hard conversations with people who were in the church? That we began to hold one another to a standard that we're supposed to be held to. If there was like a, a, a small group of people, I don't know, maybe we could call them small groups, like a small group of people that they could get together and actually have hard conversations about holding people to a standard that they're supposed to be held to, holding Christians specifically to a standard that they're supposed to be held to. Oh, Peter, this is Old Testament. Jesus did it. He literally called his best friend Satan and told him to get behind him. It's our responsibility to hold people to that standard. But if the church decided to do that, began to have hard conversations with the people that are in your life, we would shed the moniker of hypocrite pretty quickly because we would actually begin to do the things that we say we believe in. The church wouldn't look like the world. The church would look more holy, not because we're better than anybody else, but because we actually took the time to sharpen each other, to have difficult conversations because because we get we become more holy as we get opportunities for growth as other people sharpen us and we sharpen them and as leaders in the church in our communities leaders in our families it is our job to set the standard no one else's it's our job to set the standard church is like the, the time has come for us to just be honest with each other and, and be real with one another and know that like, hey, look, this isn't an opportunity to gossip. This isn't an opportunity for me to be mean to you or anything like that. I love you. I care about you. This is what I see happening in your life. Is there any truth to that? Yeah? Okay, let, how can we fix it? How can we walk together? How can I walk you towards holiness better? How is it that I can love you in the midst of all of this? How can we be obedient to God as we lead, church? As leaders, it's our job to intercede where we can and allow for the repercussions of our actions, of other people's actions, to be felt when they need to be felt. That's our responsibility as Christian leaders. And as all of those things begin to fall into place, as, as the church becomes sharper, the church then gets the opportunity to change the world. The church then gets the opportunity to be the city on the hill that it's called to be. The church then becomes a place that people want to be a part of, not flee from. Why? Because it's different. It's more difficult. It's harder. It's different, and it offers hope in Jesus that no one else offers. That can't be offered anywhere else. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for a difficult text. And God, I thank you for, man, I thank you for your attributes. I don't understand all of them in the depth, obviously, that you do. But God, you're holy and you're set apart, and I don't need to understand all of them completely. But God, what I do understand is that because you're holy and because you're set apart, it's my responsibility to be obedient to you. And sometimes that's really, really hard. God, I couldn't even imagine being an Israelite at the time and saying, when Moses said, hey, come, if you are for Yahweh, come to me. A metaphorical line drawn in the sand. And then you saying, go and kill anybody else who's not here. 
God, that's hard. And so thank you for Moses and his example of leadership and obedience. And so God, as we, as we look at our lives now and we look at the things that we are staring down, God, I pray that we would be willing to listen to your spirit and we would be obedient to your spirit in our lives, the, call, the, the, like the things that your spirit is calling us to, the things that your word is calling us to, that we would, we would simply be willing vessels to be able to do those things, whatever it is they are. God, it's clear that we're called to have a backbone, a loving backbone, but we're called to have one. And so, God, I pray that you would embolden us. I pray that we as the church, we in the church, would be willing to sharpen one another. And those conversations are hard and they hurt and they're not fun for anybody involved. But God, I pray you would make this body stronger, sharper, more dangerous to a culture who doesn't understand it. Dangerous in such a way that, man, we get to go into our communities and just love people well. So well that they don't understand it. But God, I know that starts with obedience. So I pray we'd be obedient to that. Father, if there's those here who are like, hey, tell, I want to know more about this God who is holy and perfect and set apart and who sent his son to die on a cross so I didn't have to endure death. If that's, if that's you today and you have yet to say yes to Jesus or maybe you've said yes to Jesus a thousand times and this is just a morning that you feel like you need to dedicate yourself back to him and say, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. Either way. You can pray along with me. Just in the quietness of your heart, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I know that I constantly come up short, and I'm sorry for that. But B, I believe that you sent your Son to die on the cross for me. So even though the wages of sin is death, the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, gives us eternal life. I believe that, Father. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day. I would choose to be obedient to you every single day, specifically in the realms of leadership that I'm responsible for, whether that be in my home, my job, my nonprofit, my whatever it may be, that I would be obedient to you first and foremost and no one else. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.